0: taken from Matthew 19:1 through 12. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that is the beginning of the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and the two will become one. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no, let man put, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, is it better not to marry? Jesus replied, no, everyone cannot accept this word, but only those whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it.
1: Thank you, Ernie. Look what I've got. I've got a Reese's peanut butter cup. And if you don't mind, I think I'm gonna have myself a Reese's peanut butter cup. If I can open it. I didn't bring any to share. It's all for me. Now, of course, I'm going to take the Reese's peanut butter cup, and I've got my knife here. And I'm going to get this peanut butter out, because I just want the chocolate. You save the peanut butter for later. You put it on your toast. And for now, you just eat the chocolate. What? You don't all do this? No. No? Isn't that how you're supposed to eat a peanut butter cup? No? No, of course not. That's not how you eat a Reese's peanut butter cup. Reese's brings chocolate and peanut butter together to be eaten as one. However much I might insist that performing my little procedure here is the right way to go about eating a Reese's, I would simply be wrong. My opinion here doesn't change the facts. Peanut butter cups are created to be eaten as a splendid union of chocolate and peanut butter. Now I have to say, I never anticipated that I would one day perform surgery on a Reese's peanut butter cup in a sermon. (laughs) But I've done so because I think it provides a vivid image of what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 19, 1 through 12. Now, at the beginning of this chapter, um, Matthew kind of transitions us to a new phase of Jesus' ministry. And if you look up here, you'll see the map of the area of Israel. And Matthew describes how Jesus left Galilee in order to head down to the area, the region, of Judea. Now, he also says that he crossed the Jordan. And so, we can imagine him coming down. The Jordan River is right here. comes down and he just crosses over. And that brings him into the area of Perea. So, he's going to come down and make his way down to Jerusalem, eventually, where he's going to ultimately be crucified. Um, but for now, he's in this area of Perea, which is the area um, that John uh, says in John 10 that John the Baptist was in the early days baptizing. And so, what is Jesus doing in this area? Well, Matthew says that he is healing people, and Mark 10 that in, in Mark 10 it says that he was teaching people. Basically, Jesus was doing exactly what he was doing. And Galilee, teaching and healing, bringing the news of the kingdom of God. And as in Galilee, he is confronted by some of the religious leaders, in this case, the Pharisees. And as has become common, they decide they want to try to test him, try to trip him up. They ask in verse 3, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. Now, the reason why this is a a pretty good trap they're setting for Jesus is that there are different schools of thought on this question in Jewish society. And it all stems based off of the permissions that Moses gave in the Old Testament regarding divorce. In Deuteronomy 24, verses 1-4, through says if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him about uh, becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce gives it to her and sends her from his house and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce gives it to her and sends her from his house or if he dies then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled it would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So, in the form of instruction, this is all that Mo- Moses has to say on this. And it's kind of funny because it's like the most convoluted situation you can kind of imagine. But what's, what it's indi- indicating is that divorce was something that was happening. Um, in the time of ancient Israel, in Jesus' day, two schools of thought emerged on this question of when could a man divorce his wife. And the reason why it goes from man, you know, whether the man can divorce his wife, is because it was a patriarchal society. Most of the decision was in the hands of the man, and most women probably wouldn't want to get a divorce because it would put them in a very um, dicey financial situation. Um, This is why in the early church you hear about the ministry to widows and orphans, because if you're a widow, it's tough for you to provide for yourself if you don't have a husband. So the two schools of thought were the Shammai school, which said that um, divorce, according to what Moses is saying here, is something which can um, be taken up if a wife has done something that is undecent, unchaste, adulterous. The other school, the school of Hillel, was much more broad-minded in what you could use as grounds for divorce. They say that if your wife cooked you a bad steak dinner, you could divorce her on, that, on those grounds. Or if you found another woman that looked prettier, you could go and marry her and, and leave, leave your wife. And so you have these two competing schools of thought, and in fact, the school of Hillel was the one that is, was more popular in Jesus' day. And it's not too surprising. I mean, it gives the most license, especially to the, specifically to the men, to just basically do what they want. And Jesus, is, throughout his ministry, has been coming along and challenging the condition of people's hearts. Saying that even if you look at a woman or at a man with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. But the Pharisees are testing Jesus here in order to kind of, perhaps, kind of divide and conquer. If Jesus says that, yeah, you can pretty much divorce for any reason, um, he'd make him distasteful in the eyes of the school of Shammai. If he says that, no, it's actually pretty stringent, the conditions in which you can divorce, uh then he would anger kind of the popular opinion of his day. So in his response, Jesus makes a move that actually upends this ploy um, of the Pharisees. Instead of looking to Deuteronomy, as they might expect, Jesus goes back to Genesis to establish his position. So now here we're looking at verses 4 through 6, and... Um, what he's doing is he's going back to the beginning when human beings were created. And he highlights some basic truths about human beings. First, Jesus has something to say about gender. and Genesis 1.27, that's what he's quoting here, he refers to the fact that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So as far as human beings are concerned, there are two genders. There's male and there's female. And this aligns with all of biological reality. Well, the rest of the animal world, that's the division. You have male and female. And what's more, Jesus goes on to say that male and female were created to relate to each other in a very special way. It says that God's pur- purpose in making us male and female is that we'd be able to become one, united as one, in marriage. And in his teaching here, he's referring from to Genesis 2, uh, looking at verses 18 and 21 through 23, where, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. It's, a, it's really a quite beautiful picture because when, you, when we talk about God's creation of human beings, you can think of it as a uni, unitary whole, that he made humans, and that humans are defined as male and female, and that the picture of humanity is captured insofar as they are together. Now, from these truths, Jesus draws his conclusion in verse 6. He says, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So what is Jesus saying here? What Jesus is saying here is that Marriage is not man's idea. Marriage is God's idea. It's not a mere product of culture. And in its essence, it cannot be changed by culture. The second thing that it indicates is that however much our society might try to innovate marriage by confusing and multiplying partners, These are not marriages. The reason for this is because our moral reference point is the beginning. It goes back to God's design and intent. Our moral reference point is not the 21st century in terms of what popular opinion says. It's not even the 1950s, which some of us might look back fondly on our moral reference point is what did God do in the beginning? What was his intent for mankind? The one flesh union between husband and wife is not a mere metaphor. It's a substantial reality which, when broken, has consequences. In short, what Jesus has declared here is that no one has the authority to break this union except God Himself. This is why throughout the Bible we see permission given for men and women to remarry after their spouse dies. God's the one who determines our days and how long our union with our spouse will last. Jesus' statement here can't be any stronger. The Pharisees recognize this in eagerly latch onto what seems to them to be a glaring inconsistency. Looking at verses 7 through 9, specifically verse 7, they ask, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Seems kind of like a real gotcha moment. But Jesus doesn't back down. Verses 8 and 9, Jesus says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Again, that's the reference point. It was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So, looking back at Deuteronomy 24, we notice here that Moses does not command divorce. That's kind of the wording here that the Pharisees use, kind of suggests that that's what Moses is doing. But that's not what he's doing. He's just giving permission based on the hard reality that is in place in ancient Israel at that time. And the hard reality is the hardness of the human heart. Now, as you know from studying the Old Testament, Israel was not righteous in the way that God desired her to be. They were disobedient at every turn. So if God had required them to not divorce, to be faithful as He desired them to be, this would have just brought even more judgment upon them. And it could have led to some real hurt for women. Because there's a per- certain protection that's given when a woman is at least given the certificate of divorce in ancient times. Because if a man just abandoned his wife, then his neighbors, everyone else, they, could, they might just think, like, oh, this woman is an adulterer, a prostitute, a harlot, something like that. By giving her a certificate what's being publicly stated is that she hasn't really done anything (laughs) that should lead to her being exiled from society. When we look to the rest of Scripture, we find that God is heartbroken by divorce. And that... He does, in fact, call His people to be faithful, even if He's tolerating divorce during this time. When we look at Malachi 2, verses 14-16, through 16, people of Israel are asking why God is not responding to their sacrifices, their prayers. The prophet Malachi says, You ask why? Is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? Again, going back to Genesis, you belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. The objection that the Pharisees raise here about their permissiveness that Moses communicated in his day does not stand up when it's put against God's ultimate will for marriage, which has been revealed from the beginning. That the two would remain one. That they would not be separated. And what Jesus is making clear here in these verses is that the certificate of divorce means... Nothing, when it just issued for any old reason. It's just a piece of paper in the eyes of God. A man and wife are not truly divorced just because they've gone to court and made it so. And that's why he says that divorce introduces the sin of adultery into the equation, because that union has not, in fact, been separated. And so one or the other, whether it's, this, whether it's a mutual parting, or the one who, who says, I don't want to be with you, or the other one says, it, it brings in that sin of adultery, because God divorces no one except at death. There is an exception here, though. Jesus says that divorce is permitted when sexual immorality has occurred, when a husband or wife has physically broken their union by going to another. So you're not supposed to break the union that God has brought together between man and wife, but when one or the other goes and does that, it's not a question of if when getting divorced they will have committed adultery ultimately by getting together with other people, because that's already happened. They've already broken the union. And we see God actually metaphorically issue Israel a certificate of divorce on this basis in Jeremiah 3.8. God says, I'm sure I have it up here. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Now what God is talking about here is how his people were worshipping other gods. And in that way, they were committing a, a form of adultery. He's bringing that imagery into play here. But what it's indicating is that that's a justifiable cause for divorce because a separation has been caused. Now, this isn't, if you've been with us since we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, we've been going through it for a while, this isn't a new statement from Jesus. On the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verses 31 through 32, he says essentially the same thing. He says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, the context of Jesus saying here is pretty significant. He's saying, You have heard that it's said, but I tell you. He's raising the bar of expectations. He's saying it doesn't matter that the superficialities aren't what matter. It matters what's in your heart. It matters that you are actually truly righteous, that you're not stuck in the hardness of your ways because God isn't welcoming hard hearts into his kingdom. Divorces for other reasons had only been tolerated because of human hardness, the slavery to sin. And Jesus says that this has come to an end. He has come to break our stony hearts and make us righteous. Earlier on in Matthew 5, He indicates His purpose in coming. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's fulfilling the desire of God's heart. That this violence between human beings, between husband and wife, would be put to an end and that they would be faithful to one another. He's raised the bar, big time. Everything that he says here flies in the face of common practice in our society. As it turns out, we're not the only ones challenged by this teaching. Based on Matthew's record, it appears that the disciples took a big gulp when they heard Jesus saying these things. In verses 10 through 12. In verse 10, the disciples say, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Now, it's interesting to imagine how they may have said this to Jesus. This is the one thing that the words can't capture. They can't capture the inflection of the voice and all of that. Were they saying it kind of under a cold sweat, like, oh, gee, like no one should get married then? Or with a bit of jest, like, oh, wow, I guess we better not get married, buddy, otherwise we're, we're stuck for life kind of thing. Whatever the case may be, Jesus takes them seriously on their suggestion. But he says in verse 11, Not everyone can accept this word, that is, not to get married, but only those to whom it has been given. So not marrying is an option. Some have no sexual desire. Some men in that time had had that desire physically removed so they could serve in ancient courts with women. But then Jesus also says some live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And of course, included among that crowd is Jesus himself, because Jesus was never married. And he remained unmarried for the sake of the kingdom. He closes by saying, the one who can accept this should accept it. But, so up to this point, he has affirmed the goodness of marriage, that this has been God's creative intent. But now he's also affirming the goodness of singleness. Specifically as it's given over to serving the kingdom of God. And Paul echoes Jesus' valuation here in 1 Corinthians 7, 32-35. And if you have a chance to read 1 Corinthians 7, Paul has a whole lot more to say about all all of this, about divorce and remarriage and singleness. But for now, I want us to look at this about singleness. says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affair, how he can please the Lord... But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affair. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in an undivided devotion to the Lord." So, Paul's intent in these verses is not to command people that you must be single. You must be single to serve the Lord. This is why I'm allowed to be married, <laughs> um, unlike in the Catholic Church. Because you don't have to remain single in order to serve the Lord. But being single can oper- open up opportunities to serving the Lord that it's difficult to pursue if you are married. There's some mission fields that would be very difficult to go into if you were married and you had a family. You wouldn't want to bring kids into those situations. Altogether, here in, th- in these verses, the point that Jesus is driving home is that whether single or married, we must conform our lives to the way of God's kingdom and honor of the reality of the one flesh union between male and female in marriage. We should not destroy the Reese's by separating the chocolate and peanut butter. Now, speaking personally as a pastor, it's always difficult for me to preach on these passages like this because I know all of us have gone through situations. Some of us have been divorced. Some of us have been remarried. And... I would hate you to think that everything here rests on the authority of my opinion. Because my opinion doesn't really matter. Your opinion doesn't really matter. What matters is what God's word says. And Jesus is speaking very, very clear here. Divorce is not justified because a husband and wife don't get along. It's not justified just because you found someone more attractive. It's not justified just because the sparks of romance are gone. We have no right to tear apart what God has forged together as one. Sometimes one spouse or the other dares to do this, by committing adultery. Jesus says that divorce and remarriage is permitted in that circumstance. Offering some further instruction, Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 7, 12-15, that believers married to unbelievers shouldn't seek divorce. They should stay with their unbelieving spouses, but also that they don't need to put up a hard Dig in your heels resistance if the unbelieving spouse is insistent that they divorce. Paul says that the believer is freed from the marriage. Because our greater priority is to live at peace. Our greater priority is to honor our union with Christ than to honor our union with an unbeliever at any cost. Notably, Jesus does not say anything about situations of abuse, but we shouldn't take his silence here to mean that a person can't seek separation and protection and, if need be, divorce from an abusive spouse. Insisting that someone remain in dangerous circumstances would go against the command to love our neighbor. Apart from Christ, it is very difficult to live like this. Experience tells us this, and so does our country's divorce rate of nearly 50%. With Christ, though, it is possible for us to honor marriage. When we come to Christ, we die. We die to our old selves, and a new way of life is open to us. Paul describes this reality when speaking to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 32. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Jumping down to verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Righteous, holy, kind, compassionate, forgiving. This is who you and I need to be, especially in marriage. Before coming to Jesus, this is not who we've been. All of us have stories. Maybe you got divorced. And remarried. And the circumstances don't line up with what Jesus says here. Following Paul's guidance in 1 Corinthians 7:24, that we should remain in the acceptable relational circumstances in which God has called us. You can confess to God where you messed up. And then you should just move forward by being faithful in your current marriage. Maybe you got divorced. And there's still an opportunity to be reconciled. If you're ex as a Christian, you should take that opportunity. Sometimes that opportunity is gone. By God's grace in Christ, we can let go of our past and become faithful and present relationships. Maybe you're married and never been divorced. That's wonderful. All the same, to face the storms ahead, you need Christ just as much as anyone who has been divorced. And if you're single, you too need the grace of Christ to remain faithful to your calling at this time. To honor marriage by reserving bodily union to that covenant relationship. And to invest yourself as a servant of God's kingdom. None of this is easy. But it is the truth. If you're wrestling with questions or feeling confused by the complexities of your relationships, I'd be glad to walk alongside you in seeking the truth and discovering the path that Christ has for you. Together, we must call upon God to purify us and lead us into his way. Let us stand and sing, purify my heart. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.